Hello, everyone, and welcome to Recovery Machine, Episode 7. I'm your host, Corey, and I'm here with co-host Nathan. Nathan, how are you this evening? Doing good, Corey. How are you? Very good. Very good. So welcome back, everyone. We're going to continue on uh, with the time, time, timeline of events. We want to take you through uh, the next step after disclosure and, and all of the time to sit and wait and bring you to the independent medical exam, which is the next stage of things that is a huge determining factor for uh, the next steps of the process. And it's one that has a lot of uncertainty around it, leaves people feeling a lot of stress and anxiety. And we want to dispel some of the myths and give people a sense of, of what to be prepared for. And if you're not uh, in the situation where you need to go through an independent medical exam, it might be enlightening um, and give you a better idea of some aspects of, of what really goes on. Hey, Nathan? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a lot of people won't know that this actually occurs because it's kind of a underground current that nobody ever talks about. And unless you're in the situation, you're probably not even going to know that it exists or that it goes on. Um, and yet there is some, there's some aspects of it that are questionable as far as uh, human rights is concerned. There's been several cases that have made the news in BC uh, regarding everything from um, you know, there's been religious problems. Um, there's been conflict of interest cases, uh, all sorts of interesting things that have happened as a result of these uh, assessments. So we will take a look and we're, we're going to take you through basically the framework of how uh, independent medical evaluation is set up. And then we're going to talk a little bit about a case. Um, it's, it's a lady that I had as a client a few years ago in Obsidian. Um, and she, <clears throat> she went through this process. And unfortunately, there's a lot of room for problems. And this lady was uh, unfortunate in that she ran into just about every problem that was possible to run into. So we will take a look at that and um, what to watch out for, excuse me, and uh, hopefully give you some information so that you're prepared mentally and you've got an idea of what it looks like. Um, what did we figure it was? Two to three hours long, Corey? Yeah, it's a long, long appointment. Mm -hmm. And be prepared if you're paying out of, uh, out of pocket, it's, it's around $1,000 to $1,500 for this exam. Um, so I guess we can, what we can do, Corey, is we'll go through what happens during the exam, yeah, uh, just point by point, I'll start and we can just go back and forth. These are, we're, we're just going to give you a detailed, um, list of things that are going to be covered while you're there. So it's, it's important to remember that this is, they're really going to look deep. They're going to. They're going to uncover, you know, they're going to look under every stone. They're going to poke and pry. They want to, they want as much information as possible to make a diagnosis with. Um, the employer or, or the college or whoever is requested, the exam is interested in your fitness to return to work. They want to know how severe or if there is a, a substance abuse disorder 
They want to know how many disorders are going on. They, they want as much information as they can so that they can decide whether or not you're, you're able to return to work, and if so, when, and also what kind of treatment and, and what length of treatment will be required in the opinion, opinion of the addiction specialist. So the first thing they'll look at is your surgical history, any accidents you've been in, any mental health interventions, uh, social history. So that means they're going to look at past marriages, anytime you've been uh, married, divorced, any major life event, your children. Uh, they want to, they'll look at what you do for fun, your leisure activities, uh, as much your relationship history as you can remember. That means like right back to your first girlfriend or boyfriend. Uh, family history is big, of course. They're going to want to know if anybody in your family had similar substance abuse issues, uh, your alcohol use history and your drug use history. Yeah. And then, you know, the consequences of, of your, of your alcohol and drug use. Um, so if you've had any complications, if, you know, if you have uh, done any damage to your liver or if you're having any symptoms of, of say liver cirrhosis, or if you're a smoker, if you're experiencing any, any symptoms of uh, COPD or emphysema, that sort of thing. Um, and then of course, any, any social con consequences, any workplace consequences. Um, so for, for a lot of us, that would take us right into the, the story of what happened at work with our addictive behavior and, um, and how much we were using and then what the implications of that as we see them were, um, both physical, social, psychological, legal, you know, whatever that may be. Um, and then, and then, yeah, in, within your family life, if there's been a, an effect um, based on the addictive, addictive behavior. Yeah. Precisely. The next thing they'll look at is they're going to ask you about previous attempts to control your use, depending on what substance they're, substance they're concerned about. And usually what happens is they will, they'll inquire about your drug of choice or whatever drug was highlighted on the report, the, you know, the drug that got you in trouble or, or whatever it was, the, the behavior that got you in trouble so that you ended up in the exam. And then they're going to look and they're going to be really trying to um, uncover any poly substance use. So they're going to look at um, anything that has any mood altering substance that you describe as maybe not having full control over the use of. So They'll try to they'll try to find those those whatever they are it could be pharmaceuticals could be cannabis whatever it is, and then they'll ask you about uh, you know have you ever tried to quit, and were you successful? What kind of you know did you if it was smoking you were trying to quit? Did you try to cut down uh, on your own? Did you use nicotine replacement? That kind of thing. So they're going to get a kind of a thorough base. Um, to see kind of how, how you tried to manage these types of problems yourself. Yeah. And, and prior to that, even they might do a, what seems really, seems really silly or seems really um, sort of elementary and they'll do a, a, a mental status exam on you. Uh, they want to make sure that during the examination, you're, you're competent and that you are in your right mind. Right. So they will ask you to, repeat some phrases, usually a kind of a silly phrase 
no ifs, ands, or buts is one that comes to mind. Um, <laughs> repeat a phrase af- after them and uh, complete a couple of like really, really rudimentary tasks, like maybe folding a piece of paper into four and, and placing it on the table. Um, in some cases, it's just re- uh, replaying a, a physical command and mirroring whatever physical gesture they're doing, just to see that you are competent, you are able, you are in control of your your faculties. Yeah, and I think uh, also that there's probably times when people do show up to these exams impaired. So that would be a chance to examine the level of impairment there, and that would go in the report. Yeah, for sure. Uh, they will also, uh, throughout the information taking, as it goes along, they're, they're looking for points to build a diagnosis based on the DSM-5. The DSM-5 has definitions for what is considered substance use disorder, and it varies from mild to moderate to severe. And the number of points that you accumulate uh, throughout the exam will give the the physician information as to where you're at on that kind of spectrum of disorder. So they will, uh, they'll, they'll probably start asking you about uh, if, if you're, if you drink alcohol, they want to know how much. And then I don't know if this is still true. And I know there are, I've talked to a lot of physicians who just in their, in their daily practice, if they ask somebody how much they drink, they usually multiply that by one and a half or two to get the real answer. And I, in my experience in this exam, it was times two or three is what I saw by the time I got to the end of it. So you, you certainly don't want to embellish how much you're drinking. Um, you know, it, it, We'll get into that later, but uh, just be aware that uh, that that's what basically that's what the physician is trying to do is is gauge how much uh, alcohol you're consuming in the week. Yeah, and then similarly, they will do. There's a similar diagnostic test or questionnaire that they will ask you to complete um, for for drugs of abuse. The drugs of abuse screening test, or DAST 10 is another one that's, that's commonly used. Um, in my case, I was allowed to fill that out myself, be- I think before, before the exam. Um, and then just as sort of a time saver. So it's very much the same. They're looking for you to um, acknowledge the amount that you use. If it's playing, having a, a detrimental effect on, on your life, if you've ever tried to stop and couldn't, uh, if you ever use drugs to the point of, of blackout, like with, with alcohol, um, if it's ever led you down a road of illegal activity is another question they ask. Um, and if you're aware of any sort of medical consequences at this point, and there's a few more questions in there, but it's the same thing It's it's looking for insight into, into your behavior. Now to what you said about, about alcohol, I don't know. Is, does that, does that ring true for that question that whatever you say about, about, uh, about drug consumption, that it's multiplied or that it's, can can consider to be higher? I don't know about that. Um, I mean, that was something that I, I remember was discussed in, in pharmacy school, even when we were, when we're doing medical evaluations on patients and, and trying to uh, help them improve their health. I mean, with alcohol, people tend to 
I think with alcohol, the people tend to uh, give a low estimate. And then with, with drugs, I mean, probably now it's not, maybe it's changing, but I, I think most people just, they would omit their drug use entirely. Right. So who knows? There's probably not a lot of studies done on no, <laughs> how no. people uh, respond to a physician asking them how much drugs they do. Yeah. But uh, yeah. Um, so the next one they're going to look at is compulsive work activity. So basically what they're trying to do here is they're screening for uh, well, what they used to call uh, workaholism or whatever, where you're, you're working so much that you're forgetting about everything else in your life. I mean, again, this is one of those terms that I think is uh, it's very much on a spectrum and it's very much a condition of manageability. So for one person working 16 hours a day for seven days straight ad nauseum is going to be, that's just the way they are. Um, for someone else, it's, it's going to be vastly different. And how you manage your priorities throughout that is a very uh, individual, person-to-person uh, -person kind of cho uh, choice. So I'm not even sure. I mean, what do you think, Corey? What would they, what would they ask? Maybe the, the hours that you work, um, if your spouse has ever asked you to stop working so much, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how many shifts a week you, you extend your shift or pick up overtime would be another one. Yeah. Um, if you go into work despite feeling tired and feeling worn out or burnt out might be another one that they would ask. Um, I mean, again, in, in today's day and age, um, I think most of us would answer that, <laughs> that we, that we push it beyond where we feel good or, or healthy. Right. Yeah. Is yeah. any is any healthcare professional going to work and saying, ah, this is the perfect amount of stress? <laughs> no, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Oh man. Yeah. So another one that they would look at is uh, uh, adrenaline producing activities. You know, are you going out every weekend and, and skydiving? Do you ever drive your car recklessly or or race and get speeding tickets? Um, are you, you know, you could, you could put anything into that, like uh, any kind of extreme sports, or if you're a mountain climber or, or, or another question that you and I have encountered on, on independent medical exams is, is video games. Not that video games necessarily are an adrenaline producing activity, but they are a potentially an, an addictive activity and one that it does give you sort of a endorphin response potentially, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it hijacks the dopamine system just like uh, just like many of these type of behaviors do. I think yeah. it is interesting. You know, I I never used to to think about that much as far as you know. Well, who cares if somebody wants to? You know, if they everyone gets gets to choose their own level of risk that they're assuming. That's my yeah. kind of belief. I mean, you're, if you're an adult, you should be able to make that kind of decision. Um, but I never. It, it wasn't until I don't know, maybe over the last 10 years, I've, I've seen enough examples of people who, for whatever reason, uh, for example, uh, I have a friend who's an airline pilot and they're, they're called, like, we're referred to as safety sensitive in, in healthcare. They're referred to as safety critical. 
which means they're not allowed to, if there's any drugs in their system at any time, uh, it's a big deal. So airline pilots are typically, they just, it's, it's not worth their, you know, the, the risk for them to, to be involved with drugs and alcohol. So lots of them are, they, they'll, maybe they'll drink alcohol, but uh, for the most part, it's no drugs whatsoever. And I found a correlation between many of these types of individuals where they were restricted that way and the amount of risk-taking behaviors that they assumed. Interesting. And I thought, huh, it, so there is something there. It's, it must be a drive towards, uh, I think there's an innate drive towards wanting to kind of get out of our, our current reality. So any kind of shift in perception is desirable after a point, you know, you you just get in this, uh, you know, kind of a repetitive, mundane, uh, day-to-day activity type life, and you want to break out of it somehow. And if you're not, if you can't do drugs, then I guess skydiving or, uh, you know, free climbing or whatever it is where you're getting that, you know, obviously, uh, I mean, you know, you're going to get a, a pretty good response physiologically every time you jump out of an airplane, I would imagine. Uh, so it, it was just interesting to, to note that, 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 that probably actually is a thing. <laughs> yeah. And, and like drugs or alcohol or sex or gambling, the brain remembers the response that it got when you went skydiving or when you bungee jumped off of, off of a bridge. And if you're under a hot, whole lot of stress, it, it sort of seeks that out again. Don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, moving on, we've got, uh, what they're going to do here is a, a general mental health screen, which is really important. I mean, that's, that's something that, and this is an excellent opportunity for a physician to look into things that have played into the development possibly of a substance use disorder or uh, adjunct conditions or comorbid conditions that have developed alongside a substance use disorder which also happens frequently. So they'll look at your current levels of depression, anxiety, if you've ever suffered from an eating disorder, obsessive compulsive disorder. They're going to look at past traumatic events to see if you've got uh, post-traumatic stress. Uh, They'll look at bipolar and they'll look at psychosis. And uh, that can be, they'll do a, a screen for how you're feeling right now. And then they'll do a kind of a historical right up on, on how you do just kind of classically how you were as a kid, what it was like being a teenager, as far as those parameters are concerned, and then moving on to adulthood. So here's something interesting I was going to add about, about this section is that for myself and for a number of people that, that we know, Nathan, and I think it's probably quite common out there that, that if you're a frontline worker, um, work, work trauma, work stress is, is, has been a factor that has played into your, your substance use. You will not though be able to get a diagnosis of, of post-traumatic stress disorder or, or an adjustment disorder from that addictions physician. In, in, in my case, at least I was told, and I had already been to a psychologist who had made the appropriate diagnoses for me, but I, I had relayed that information and said, well, here's a diagnosis that, that I've, been given by a psychologist and the addictions doctor said, okay, well, 
fair enough, or I'll, I'll review those documents, but I don't make that diagnosis. So just to clear up that, um, not that it's a misconception, but if there's the expectation that you're going to go in there and be able to have your full mental health history diagnosed and, and explained, that needs to be done separately from the independent medical exam. And then could be, if you have an understanding addictions physician who's conducting the exam, that can be taken into account or or added to the picture. Yeah. Do you, uh, would, would you agree? Yeah. Yeah. And it's an excellent point to add there. It is important to understand that the physician in this case is very focused on substance use disorder. Yeah. Very. So they will note what other conditions are going on, but in no way, shape or form will that be used to. Uh, I don't think it will. It, it, it might not change their end result as far as what tr- their treatment is concerned, unless I suppose if it was something where they felt that your condition was severe enough and it hadn't been diagnosed, uh, they, they might refer you to another physician, but uh, they're, they're certainly not going to try to tackle that themselves. So it's, yeah. That's no, it, to their defense, they're not psychologists, right? They're no. Right. Um, so the, the next, the next part will be a physical, um, <laughs> like a full head to toe physical examination. Um the part that was interesting for me was that I've had two independent medical examinations and the first one was entirely over, over zoom. And so the, the physical examination uh, was hands-free and it was, <laughs> you know, within a very limited, uh, limited ability to, to do, conduct a physical when you're just looking at someone through a screen. Uh, the second time I had a, a independent medical exam, I was in the office and had a full, full physical, just like you would experience it at your, at your GP's office. Right. So they're asking you to palpate yourself or turn your head and cough. And (laughs) (laughs) it's very, very limited. And I I mean, again, you know, a year ago, um, those were just sort of the restrictions that we were under for anyone seeing a doctor. Uh, So there was no palpation. There was no auscultation. (laughs) There was no percussion. (laughs) I see. Purely visual. Okay. So they literally have to take your word for it. They do. You're in reasonable condition. They do. Yeah. Interesting. They will, of course, look at your lab work, that being your, your general lab work, as well as any diagnostics regarding drug use or alcohol use, if those are available yet. Yeah, I mean, in, in my case, I was asked to have lab work completed before my IME was done, so it was right there in front of them. Yeah, and this is a good this is a good thing to do at this point. Like we we discussed in the previous episode, it's you should get a baseline at this point anyway, just to make sure that you're at least within normal parameters for things like electrolytes or um, sex hormones, anything that can be altered by your drug of choice and um, you're, you're better off to look at that early so that you've got more time to, especially these days, it takes a lot longer to get through our medical system to the point where you're actually diagnosed with the paperwork so that you can get some kind of a treatment to, to bring those numbers back into the normal parameters. So definitely uh, use an opportunity, use this opportunity to, uh, to get as detailed of uh, lab results as possible. Yeah. Yeah. 
and again, we, so the next piece is any other collateral information that could be, could be helpful in that time. Um, and that may include um, if you have a history of, of, say head injuries, it may include some CT scan reports that you had done previously that may be helpful um, or, or CT scans of anything for that matter. But I think of head injuries because there is a, a correlation that they, that they know and look for with, with addiction and, and concussion. Um, and that could be also just any other exams from specialists that you've seen um, or psychologist reports, things like that. Um, and it may be that, that, these things aren't necessarily asked for because no one knows about them, but if it triggers, you know, if it triggers you to say, Hey, I, w- I want this doctor to know this, know the results of the scan or know what this other specialist that I saw a neurologist say what the neurologist saw a year ago on my scan. It may be helpful to advocate for yourself and, and bring those things in. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You never know what can be uh, picked up at that point. Yeah. So throughout the exam, they're going to give you the information as to what diagnostic criteria are being used as far as your final diagnosis is concerned. So in this sample one we've got here, it's the Diagnostics and Statistics Manual number five for substance use disorder, as we previously discussed there. I think at the end, we'll, we'll quickly go over what constitutes uh, mild, moderate, and severe just so you can make of this what you will. Sure. Um, but these are not, uh, these are, they're very much subjective and open to a lot of interpretation. But uh, the physician does make a point of, of clarifying which system they're using. Um, and then from there, they, uh, they'll go on to include the diagnosis and uh, a subsequent summary of recommendations. Yeah. Yeah, that's so, right. And it, it uh, and it, yeah, we will get into the DSM stuff because that will be enlightening to, um, to the listeners, but I was, I was going to say it was enlightening to me and, and maybe a little bit surprising once you sort of see what your, what your diagnosis is that is put in front of you um, on the report. And, and then it's up to you to weigh out, your, your thoughts on that, like you said, but it's worth discussing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think there's ever going to be a case where it's not up for debate as to, you know, whether diagnosis point number five was a yes or no. I mean, and you're right. It's ultimately, it's just a tool, right? So it's a, it's a guideline and they're going to use that along with all this other information that they've uh, garnered and, uh, make a call from there. Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I think people should be aware of as well with these physicians who do this type of work, uh, if you're, if you're heading into one of these exams, do ask about, uh, conflicts of interest in this particular IME, the physician made a point of of openly declaring that he does in fact have two conflicts of interest. This, uh, this actual physician has since been uh, forced to resign from positions he held because of those conflicts of interest before. I, I don't know why it was allowed, but uh, basically the physician was sending people to a monitoring company that the physician owned. <laughs> so, um, 
obviously you could see the uh, the temptation for problems there, and uh, that has since been rectified. But it's still a good idea uh, just to I think be aware that there are there are opportunities here for physicians to to make money in different ways that may or may not be ethical. And it's also important to understand that these physicians are not, uh, I mean, sometimes they're, you know, there's a lot of incentive incentive for them to, to do that. Um, We can talk about uh, how that might work in other situations in a bit here. Yeah. You, you'd mentioned modern monitoring companies that they may have a financial stake in, Another piece would be any kind of rehabilitation facility, right? Exactly. There has been speculation over the years that some of these treatment centers, uh, like for example, I I was sent to uh, Homewood, which is a facility in Guelph, Ontario, and I didn't understand why. And I was told that it was because of the, you know, they are equipped to handle medical professionals. And of course, we know that that is... Just it's, I I don't know why that's what the answer is to that question, because it's not, it's no different over there than it is here. They, they just have a small caduceus group, just like you would at any other facility. In fact, they're probably, I would say that facility is of lower quality. However, there is a suspicious looking disparity in that if you are sent, if you are an out of province patient and you are sent to an Ontario facility, such as that one in Guelph, Instead of the the regular intake fee that the government is going to pay, so say BC would pay $15,000 to put you in a 35-day treatment plan here in your home province. If you get sent over to like where I was sent, that number goes up to somewhere near 40000 because for some reason, they, the Ontario charges BC more money to do that. So... The speculation is the the reason some of these physicians are sending or the reason they were incentivized to send uh, healthcare professionals all the way to the other side of the country is because there was some financial, um, how should we put it, rebate process where, you know, if you send X amount of patients to this facility because there's such a disparity between those fee structures, uh, you know, that's a lot of money to play with. Uh, one way or the other, right? And obviously, yeah. the the facility to them it doesn't matter. It's still another patient. It, it takes up another bed. They eat the same amount of food. Nothing has changed, but the price tag is much bigger. So you, I, and I don't know why. <laughs> why on earth they would do something like that? Uh, it's almost a. It's like they're opening the door for corruption there. And I don't have any physical proof or evidence that any of this has ever went on. It's just. Uh, I've seen a lot of suspicious things and it, it, it doesn't take a, a big, you know, it, it's not a giant leap to think that, that something could at least potentially go wrong there. Yeah. So I think, and not that we, as the, um, the patient on the other side of that can, can do anything about it when we are sitting face to face with the, with the physician having the IME conducted, but it's good to to have informed consent and to know what what you're sitting in on. And uh, you know, I remember this was so early on in, in the process for me. Um, but the physician said to me without me asking, 
that she wanted me to know that she had no uh, financial stakes in, in any company uh, addiction or monitoring or rehabilitation related, nothing. And I nodded and said, okay, great. Not knowing that sort of that there was so much more going on to this, to this story, but um, if I had it all to do over again, knowing this, that would be a question that I would ask. If it wasn't told to me, I would, I would ask for clarification. I would want to know that um, in any circumstance, I think. And I think a lot of people would too, right? Absolutely. Especially if you're in a situation that, that is more litigious. If you know that your job is on the line and it's going to be um, a duty to accommodate situation, or maybe you're even uh, facing disciplinary action that could result in termination, then all these factors are going to be looked at uh, down the road by a judge. So you will want to make sure that uh, whatever, I mean, it's another opportunity to kind of, um, well, this is a great point to make right here in the conversation is that if you get into a situation where you're doing this IME and for whatever reason, the, you don't feel like, uh, the doctor is being forthright or you, you feel like you're not, you're not being treated fairly, or there's just for whatever reason, sometimes doctors and patients just don't get along and, and that's the way it is. It, you should know that in almost every case, if you ask your regulatory body, college, employer, etc., they will allow you to seek out another addiction specialist and try again. And <clears throat> this is worth doing uh, for, a, for a bunch of different reasons, but you want to, this is a relationship that you're going to have for the next, you, you don't know it yet. But it's going to probably be three to five years that you're, you're going to be dealing with this phys- physician. And this physician is going to be uh, wielding a lot of control over your life. So you, you should really kind of keep an eye on the, how the relationship is developing throughout this exam and uh, trust your instinct. If, if something feels off, then you know, complete, the, complete the exam and, and go home and let it process and think about it. And... And then, you know, maybe consider some of the factors that if there's something that comes up there that you don't like, or, or <clears throat> for example, Corey, you had a, you had a great physician uh, in that uh, they were flexible with, with you and your family situation. Can you give us an example of, of how your physician allowed you to kind of work that out? Whereas some I've seen where other physicians just say it's not possible. Yeah, this is a common one, and it's a common common source of of stress and conflict for for people with children. You know that uh, my physician had asked me if I were to be sent um, sent out of province to a rehabilitation facility, what would I do with that? How would I comply with that? And I had already that that was a question I had asked myself for weeks leading up to the exam. Was that if I have to go out of province, um, I'm I'm not willing to leave my my son. And I didn't know what that really, what that would mean for, for my future and for the whole process of, of that I was going through, but that, that was kind of a line that I had drawn. So I had said, you know, I, I, I would seek alternatives to going, going out of province. I would do anything I had to do to not go out of province. And I'm not sure I would do it. And she didn't send me out of province. She said, okay, if she, you know, and, and I'd also explained my family situation. I had explained to her the resources that I had 
you know, that I live um, down the street from my sister and her family and that I had a close family around me. And I know that those things were taken into account. But uh, the fact that that question was asked of me, if I send you out of province, what will you do with that? Uh, I really, I, I respect that. And I, uh, I'm grateful for that because um, the idea of leaving, leaving our families, leaving our small children is, uh, is really stressful. And you and I have both know individuals who, who have had to face that. And, um, oh man, it makes matters so much more difficult when you're, when you're over there, I, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, imagine being on the other side of the country. Um, you know, it's, uh, it's Christmas time. You're, you know, you're from BC, but you're over in, in Ontario and your sons or your daughter is, is having a tremendous difficulty with, uh, some kind of mental health issue or whatever, you know, you, regardless of what kind of concerning event is going on, it's difficult to imagine somebody being able to concentrate effectively on what they're learning in that treatment center when they've got that kind of a situation going on back home. Yeah. So what your physician did there demonstrates a professionalism and an empathy that is commendable to say the least. Oh man, absolutely. Yeah. So that's good to see. Um, unfortunately, uh, it doesn't happen often. So it doesn't No. <clears throat> So the DSM, Nathan, that's like, that's our, uh, our next point is, is how, how the DSM is used. And I mean, it, we can, um, maybe this is a, a time to get into this specific, specific case that we have to outline. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, that's a, that's a, using this as an example is a, this case is an excellent one for, looking at how the uh, DSM-5 diagnosis criteria can be, can fail the individual and be stretched beyond the imagination to facilitate a claim of a, of a substance disorder. Um, so for this, uh, this lady uh, that we're using as an example here, she was a nurse. She has since retired from the profession uh, due to basically this, this process left her in a position where she had to let go of her license. But um, at the time, she had been accused of uh, um, administrating higher than normal doses of hydromorphone in IM or intramuscular injectable form when she was the majority of the patients that they had at the facility they were taking care of were to be given oral hydro hydromorphone. She didn't agree with that because of she thought some patients had some problems taking pills and for whatever the whatever the the truth in the matter is, it sounds like there was some kind of conflict between this individual and their their manager. So so what happened is the manager uh, decided to report her for diverting narcotics. Uh, there was there was a, a little bit of detail given in the report as to what went on. None of it damning evidence, but um, enough so that uh, when it was sent to the physician, the physician looked at it and took the accusation seriously and then went on to perform the, the necessary 
questionnaires and uh, documentation. So there was, uh, so she had the one issue was the, uh, the hydromorph at work. That was the one that brought her there. And then she had been, uh, uh, she had used cannabis for 20 plus years. Uh, we're talking uh, like a puff or two at night before bed to help her sleep. Uh, it also helped with, uh, she had a arthritic condition and fibromyalgia. Cannabis helped alleviate pain associated with that. And other than that, she, she drank alcohol at what, what I think most people would consider to be a, a social, a general, like a, a usual social amount for her age bracket or whatever. <clears throat> so we'll, we'll, we'll leave that part of it there. And um, maybe we'll just go through, uh, we'll talk about what the diagnostic criteria are. This, this is what the physician is looking at to, to use, um, to basically, the, they're looking to get a number. So however many of these traits are checked off, that's going to, to give a diagnosis of mild, moderate, or severe. And then from there, they will, they'll treat accordingly. That's right. So the first one they look at is, uh, and keep in mind, the physician in this case is going to be looking at three. They're going to be looking at cannabis use, alcohol use, and there's suspicion of hydromorph. I should mention also that this patient uh, takes, uh, took Tylenol number three, uh, two a day for uh, when the physician looked at the Pharmanet record, it was a, uh, it went back a few months and the patient had been taking those Tylenol exactly as uh, two a day is what was prescribed. And that's how she was taking. Um, so they knew that there was some coding involved there, but they were looking, uh, they wanted to know more about the, uh, the hydromorph situation. So keep in mind that those three are, are what they're looking at. Yeah. And then, so the first one would be uh, the substance is often taken in larger amounts over a longer period than was intended. So in her case, what do you think about that one? Well, I mean, again, looking across the substances um, in, and in the presence of a chronic medical condition, that becomes pretty difficult to to say, you know, if you, for example, if you were to have um, chronic back pain or a back injury, that could go, that could be longer than expected. The, the trajectory of your recovery could be, could mean that, that you were taking Tylenol threes or, or that you went on to take Tylenol ones or whatever it was for, for longer than expected. The term expected is a, in my opinion, kind of a gray term, no? Uh, you're absolutely right. I agree with you totally. How are you supposed to know? Uh, I mean, some of the, she had at least two chronic conditions that, uh, I mean, we don't know and who, nobody knows how long it's going to take. Maybe it, it maybe it's a, a condition for life. I mean, lots of people develop, uh, uh, forms of arthritis that are just, they live they live with it. Right. So that's right. Um, I, so, I mean, I don't think, I don't think, um, you know, I, maybe, maybe if the, uh, the patient in question had, uh, talked about not being able to control 
alcohol, then I would, I would, I would think, okay, well, maybe there might've been an issue there, but it, it doesn't seem like that was the main thing. It kind of seems like the main problem was the hydromorph. And in the interview, she was steadfast in her claim that she didn't take hydromorph. So, um, so that's the first question. Yeah. So I can go with number two here. It's the persistent desire or unsuccessful effort to cut down or control your substance use. The persistent desire. <laughs> what do you make of that, Nathan? Well, I, uh, I don't think so. there was no persistent desire or intent whatsoever to cut down on the cannabis. I believe that that was being used at a, uh, you know, it, it just being used regularly and successfully the patient had stated that she'd tried a pharmaceutical route by taking zopiclone and while the zopiclone worked she she preferred not taking a pharmaceutical medication if she could uh, use cannabis instead uh, to me that's you know that's her right as an adult she can you know she's free to do that in under normal circumstances. So I don't think there was any desire to, to cut back the use because the use was, uh, it served a purpose and it was working well. Yeah. The thing I, that comes to mind for me with that is like, if there's, if there's a persistent desire to cut down and you can't, then that's problematic. But is it also then problematic if there is a lack of desire? Could a lack of desire be perceived as a lack of insight into the problem that you have? Could it be interpreted that way by the person on the other end of the examination? That would be a, a concern, right? <laughs> so you see somebody over there and they're just a, a madman and they're, there's more, more, I want more. I don't care. My life's falling apart. And they're, they're, they don't appear to show any, uh, there's no remorse. They, uh, they have no desire to turn back. They're just <laughs> fully engaged. Um, yeah, I, I guess that would, um, well, how likely or not likely it is that they show up for their IME, I guess would be, uh, the question. Then. <laughs> maybe so. And, and maybe it's just the, it's the specific language that I recognize that it's an interesting use of language in these, in some of these points that you'll, you'll notice a theme that it's, uh, sometimes it's, it's language that is more, more subjective than you would necessarily think that it, it would be. Oh, for sure. Yeah. yeah. This, yeah. This isn't a scientific document, you know, how no. you, you normally expect uh, when you're talking about uh, medical diagnoses, it should be, you know, is it that, or is it this move on to the next thing? That's usually how the, like, if you look at any flow diagram in a, a training manual for uh, doctors based on a condition, it's usually, well, is the patient experiencing this? Yes. Okay. Then here's your options from there. What about, you know, and it just goes down the line. Yeah. This is more like a, um, this reads like, uh, it's litigious in nature, right? Sure. Yeah. Take us to the next one here. Um, a great deal of time is spent in activities necessary to obtain the substance, use the substance or recover from its effects. So how would our uh, sample patient work here? So, I mean, if it's alcohol we're talking about and with the accessibility of alcohol in our, in our society, there's not a great deal of time there. Although um, it, it very much depends on the nature of, of one's behavior. Um, if we're looking at 
something like I'll I'll just speak for my bring myself into it that 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 opiate use for me at work became a, an all consuming thing. So there was a lot of my day that was spent thinking about it or thinking about the next time I would use it or how I would go about how I would go about getting it. There's a lot of planning that goes into it for a lot of people. But if we're talking about um, prescription use, where you have a have a valid prescription, or we're using substances that are over the counter or that are legal, then it's that that, that question sort of doesn't necessarily carry a lot of weight. No, it would be completely. Uh, irrelevant if you're talking about like for instance her codeine use she's and, and this is not always the case as a pharmacist i can tell you any type of pain med any type of benzodiazepine uh, stimulant you frequently see people go through those faster than than what the prescription is written for sure That's, uh, it's, it's it's more the rule than the exception so to me when i see that she's um I mean, I think the physician went back a year and looked at the Tylenol 3 usage over a year, and it was just almost perfect. Um, that This is somebody who, if they were going to have a problem in that arena, they would have shown some kind of deviance from the plan, in my opinion. Sure. Um, and your, your point about the alcohol, yeah, I mean... The, in our society, it doesn't take a lot of planning or, uh, you know, it doesn't take a lot of time to get a hold of alcohol. It's more the people who are, um, you know, like we've got, um, both of us know many individuals who got into trouble with drinking away from work to the point where they could no longer recover enough to go to work sure. or when they, they were still going to work, but they were a fraction of what they could be as far as their skill sets concerned. Yeah. So, I mean, that, and, and, and that is something that is, that is uh, in many cases, an, a socially acceptable thing or like, a, you know, how many, for any of our listeners, how many times has someone come into work and said, oh, I'm hungover today. Oh, I went out last night and I'm just, I'm feeling it. Yeah. And that uh, it's a very profession dependent one too. It is. What I've noticed, uh, I haven't had many RCMP members come through Obsidian, but I have had a few and in the RCMP, there is a real, uh, I, I could tell you that it, it would be a difficult thing to be in the RCMP and not drink alcohol. Their, their culture is very much about that beer after work. So depending on, uh, there's a few that are like that. And nurses are, I mean, nurses are up there with that one too. You see it pretty frequently where it's. Absolutely. You know, everybody's, when you get to the end of your rotation, everybody's talking about where they're going to have a drink and, and, you know, this is, this is fine. This is normal uh, in most respects, but uh, again, you know, you're going to, you're going to have the odd, the odd person who is not able to manage that, that cultural push. Right. Yeah. And we also know folks that have gone into work said, Oh, I'm hungover today. And that phrase in itself has pulled them into the machine, so to speak. Right. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. It doesn't take much. It doesn't No. So number four is a pretty straightforward one. There's a craving or strong desire or urge to use the substance. So do you, do you crave it or not? Yeah. I, and I, I mean, <laughs> you know, that's a poignant question. Of course it's uh, that's a big deal. I mean, when, uh, there's times where I still crave Oxycontin, you know, I, I think that craving will be there for the rest of my life. 
talk to people who've quit smoking and ask them if they can put a cigarette in front of them. They might have a craving for that cigarette. Uh, it's a good indicator of, of how much of a pull that drug's got on you. Yeah. And uh, I mean, in our sample case here, um, I don't think she's, uh, well, you could say, uh, I don't know about a, a craving, but she was, this particular person was adamant that she wanted to use cannabis to help her sleep. So a physician could interpret that as, Oh, look at this person is, uh, you know, because of the stigma around using cannabis for any, you know, we're kind of, we're trying to get past it, but it's still, um, you know, there's a lot of, uh, kind of old fashioned thinking there, especially and, in the healthcare world. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, when I, I was involved in this uh, early on, and one thing I suggested as an option was to have the patient switch to a pharmaceutical grade cannabis product like uh, Sesamet or Nabilone or, you know, something like that to kind of split the difference as a, you know, I won't smoke it anymore, but can you please give me the same product or something similar so I can get the benefits? And the answer to that is no, because you're still under this set of rules that is considered a mood altering substance to which I counter with, why are we allowed to use antidepressants? Well, those are okay types of mood altering substance. Okay. <laughs> so we can still smoke. We can still drink or we can still smoke. We can still uh, drink coffee and we can have uh, we can have antidepressants. Those are considered okay. You know, but uh yeah, it, it's an interesting, uh, I, I understand that they're drawing a line, but a lot of times the line is, there's not a lot of uh, rationality behind where it's being drawn. So Yeah, my, my entire morning coffee routine is unconscious and magnetic. You know, it's a straight line from bed to, to the kettle to start making coffee. Yeah. Um, I don't even have to think about it. So it's, Again, just an interesting point of discussion on on these on these diagnostics, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so number five, recurrent substance use resulting in failure to fulfill major role obligations at work, school, or home. So this is a question of manageability. Yeah, and it's a good question, and it should be one that uh, a person asks themselves whenever they're. Uh, using a, what they call a mood-altering substance. It's a, it's a gauge that I, throughout my whole life, I've used that as a gauge to see how, you know, am I going too far? Or am, I, am I out of control with this or that? And uh, as long as I was still progressing with the things that I wanted to do goal-wise in my life, I was able to show up to work. Um, I was able to go to the gym, all those types of things. As long as those boxes were checked, for me, I felt okay about what was going on. Once I ran into my drug of choice, those things started to drop off. And, uh, you know, I, I realized one day and I sat there and I was just, I was no longer the person that I was, you know, I wasn't, I was doing the bare minimum in every aspect of my life and everything was focused on obtaining more of that substance. Yeah. That for me, exactly. That for me is a question that I, couldn't answer honestly until I removed myself from 
the workplace and removed myself from the substance. Um, that insight wasn't there because it, I mean, as much as it sounds like bullshit, as much as I was thinking, I was asking myself that question um, while I was using opiates, I was deceiving myself and, and deluding myself about it and, and rationalizing and justifying and all that kind of stuff that, that we as humans do. And, um, and yeah, I think I, but I, I think it could be, that could be looked at from um, in any substance that, that, maybe removal from that substance is the time to ask that question or that it's an easier time to ask that question versus when you're kind of in, engaged in it, you know? I understand completely. This is why I'm a big proponent of 90 days. Uh, 90 days get your head out of the clouds and there's a difference between the way you think. Uh, if you give your brain a chance to uh, get back into that balance and you can, you can, it's, it's surprising the difference. It is literally like being clouded in. Um, like I, it's like you're in a little village and the clouds are real low and you're kind of comfortable. The rest of the world, there's not even really that much noise. Everything's dampened down. And then somewhere from outside, somebody's asking you a question and you're like, eh, you know, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a great analogy. Great I'm analogy. Doing my thing. And then after, if you give yourself the time, pretty soon you get close and then your head pops out the top and the whole world opens up and all your senses start working again. And you're like, oh, damn. Okay. Yeah. I got pretty far into it there. So there's, there's two very different perspectives there, in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. And the next point kind of, to me, I look at these two questions as being pretty similar. Um, continued substance use despite having persistent or recurrent social or interpersonal problems caused by or exacerbated by the effects of the substance. Um, so again, this is looking at more um, situations like where are you getting together with a group of friends to, to have a drink after work and you're the one who always quote takes it too far or drinks until you're obliterated when everyone else is just having one or two drinks. Yeah, or you're you're taking a bunch of pills, and pretty soon you're uh, ignoring your significant other, or you notice that, lo and behold, every time you uh, get to a certain port, point in drinking, you end up in the drunk tank, or you know, they, I think it's for most people, if they're honest and they look around at their life and their relationship to whatever substances they're they're consuming it should be fairly clear as far as you know impact and how much of an impact is being made on on individuals that you care about how much of an impact is being made on your own personal kind of growth and and your own goals and i'm not saying everybody has to you know it's not like everybody has to be a goal oriented person it's just whatever your priorities are and whoever the people are in your life that you care about um you need to be honest about how the, the substances that you're, that you're using are affecting those parameters. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so next one is important social, occupational, or recreational activities are given up or reduced because of substance use. See, they're kind of, <laughs> they're kind of using the, the different wording for saying the, the same type of thing over and over again, which is fine because these are important, uh, these are important points. Sure. 
But uh, I mean, yeah, like using myself as an example, at the height of my addiction, I was withdrawn. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. I just wanted to be by myself. Uh, I did the bare minimum just to make enough money to pay my bills. Uh, I didn't, you know, if I was in a relationship, I, I did the bare minimum there, you know, like I was just barely putting on a facade of a life uh, because mm. the, the, the main, the main center, the main focus of everything that I was doing was just continuing to chase that feeling. Right. Yeah. This, this question for me, this point for me comes hand in hand with mental health and addiction. Like with my mental health, an, an important question or an important self-assessment that I use now and would continue to use moving forward is, am I, am I isolating? Am I starting to self-isolate? Am I retreating? Um, and I think that my, yeah, like you, Nathan, my retreating certainly was exacerbated by, by substance use and I was trying to hide it and mask it. Um, but that is a tendency that I have that I, that I had long before substance use ever started, like where if I'm feeling down or if I'm feeling blue for whatever reason, I can just, my like natural wiring is to like kind of close things off or like stay at home that day, be, be quieter. Uh, don't necessarily reach out again. We, we learn how to do that and, and it gets easier, but, um, but there's a, it's a good to ask that question. I think before, addiction while you're actively in addiction and then look at it after and see how, see how that's changing. Yeah. The question should be taken relatively for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so the next point is recurrent substance use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. What, what do they mean here? What does that mean to you? Recurrent substance use in situations in which it is physically hazardous. Uh, driving impaired, I guess, is that what they're referring to here? Um, being intoxicated while you're in a safety sensitive position. I'm not sure. I mean, to, to me, it's like, it, this is where the language is a little bit funny. Like we know that studies have shown that, that certainly that, that smoking cigarette smoking is carcinogenic. Studies have shown that alcohol use is carcinogenic. Um, Studies have shown that it has a negative effect on, on your liver function and can lead to a whole string of complications there. But I don't think they're asking that. I don't think they're saying, you know, are you drinking despite the fact that you know that it could damage your liver? I don't think that's, that's the question. But it, it might, like you said, might be more connected to high-risk behaviors, high-risk activity. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, you, you could say that about uh, trans fats or... Um... High fructose corn syrup. I mean, like those are both physically hazardous. There's no question. Uh, yeah. Probably more people are dying of high fructose corn syrup than, well, for sure, more people are dying of that than uh, cannabis. I can guarantee that all day long. Yeah. So I'm not, yeah, that's, you know, I, I'd like to look into that question a little bit more and see what the origins are and, and maybe uh, what they're driving at there is is a little bit different than what I'm seeing because, I mean, humans do lots of things where there's risk involved. Every time you get in your vehicle to drive to work, you're aware of 
you know, you're assuming some risk. Yeah. Like, I, I wonder if, if that originates back to, you know, when, when things like, um, things like hard drugs, like heroin were only available in, in, you know, big cities where you had to go into, into quote unquote dens and, and use them in that fashion or, or if they're suggesting needle sharing or, or something like that. Yeah. I mean, indirectly, sure. Yeah. I, they could say that, uh, I mean, anytime you're, I suppose you could say, uh, well, these days being an IV drug user is dangerous just based on the fact that there's, you don't know what the hell you're getting unless you're lucky enough to have a pharmaceutical supply. Sure. And that's a, that's a, an example. Like yeah, you're rolling the dice every single time. Right. So yeah. Okay. From that, that makes sense. I guess if you're, if you're out there on the street and you're choosing to use fentanyl and meth every single day, especially IV, then you know, a hundred percent that every single time you're doing that, you are rolling the dice yeah. and that should be a fairly potent indicator that you are placing that, that drug high on your list of priorities above your own life. Right. Yeah. yeah Which is typical. Sure. Um, so what do we got here? What is there 11 of these? Yeah, we're almost there. Go to the side. We're at number nine. Okay. Substance use is continued despite knowledge of having a persistent or recurrent physical or psychological problem that is likely to have been caused or exacerbated by the substance. Yeah. So, you know, again, the obvious ones would be where um, you're continuing to smoke despite having some shortness of breath or having some, some, some symptoms of COPD, um, or you know that you're, you're still drinking despite having um, some liver dysfunction and some, some symptoms of you know, cirrhosis, say. Um, but there are certainly much more, more subtle ones. Um, I think in, in our example with our opiate use, we both were aware of the physical effects that it was already starting to have on us. Um, but you, you, again, with, for a whole host of reasons, you keep going, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I was constantly weighing the risk versus benefit. And once the, I mean, I was down to a very short window of benefit, but it was still keeping me around for a long time. Like it's surprising how far you'll chase that until finally I looked and I'm like, man, this is madness. Like the, the options are escalate much further or stop. And yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it just, it really does leave you with no, no alternative after a while. Um, as far as our sample patient is concerned. Yeah. I don't think, so the cannabis, there would be no question that that, that is not the situation. And I don't think that you could make the case that for her alcohol would fall, uh, that she would get a check mark, mark here. If the physician is assuming that the allegations are true, that she was uh, diverting narcotics, hydromorphone specifically for her own use, um, then the, the physician could, uh, I suppose they could check that box off. Yep. Yep. Okay. So this next one is, is interesting. Uh, tolerance, meaning tolerance to the, the substance in question or whatever substance you want to apply it to in, in any case. 
Tolerance as defined by either of the following. A need for markedly increased amounts of the substance to achieve intoxication or the desired effects, or a markedly diminished effect with continued use of the same amount of the substance. So either you're requiring, you know, five, five times your daily dose, or you're where you once took two pills, you now have to take four pills, or where you once had two drinks at night, you're now having three or four drinks at night. Um, or if you're just, if you were taking one or two drinks at night, does it have any effect on you? Or does that, you know, in my case, it does that two milligrams of hydromorphone, does that do anything to you anymore? Yeah. So probably both of us could attest to the fact that you develop tolerance to opiates fairly, uh, it's fairly linear, um, but it's not always, uh, it's not always steady like that, uh, depending on a whole bunch of different factors, including metabolism, your diet, what you ate that day, how much sleep you have, yeah. uh, what other, you know, maybe, uh, you've got, uh, a whole bunch of coffee in your system. That's altering the amount of uh, blood that's being pumped around. There's all sorts of different factors, but generally for me, um, I suppose I, I think because genetically I was, I'm set up in such a way that I get such a kick from, from that drug specifically, it made it so that I could keep a steady dose while I was working. And I did find a kind of a, a spot that was uh, where I got a lot of benefit and not enough, um, not enough problems to, to make it overwhelming. So I was able to do that, which is probably uh, not always the case. Um, and it certainly on the weekends and when I wasn't at work, I was definitely, my dose was usually escalating. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I certainly had tolerance going on there. There it's I, I, that question is an important one. Like so many of these other ones to, to make a part of a self-assessment too, I think, right. Like, to, to, to ideally we would all take notice of for anyone who does drink alcohol, you know, it, it, am I requiring more than I, than I used to require uh, to, to feel that little bit of a, a buzz or whatever it may be. Right. Um, and, you know, it, you were talking about factors that change that. And we're, the, the question isn't, doesn't weigh in factors. The question takes no consideration over if you've had a stressful day or if you've gotten into a fight with someone, or if the boss is piling on more, more shit in on you at work, it's purely under sort of a state of equilibrium. Does that, does X amount create this effect or not? Um, but it's almost impossible to parse between when, when those factors are present or not, because especially with, um, with misuse, if you're using it at a time other than in a, in like a light social setting, there are factors that will, will affect how much you use and the effect that it has. Yeah. Almost always, I guess if you look at it for individuals who are using whatever the substance is chronically, then maybe it's a little easier to gauge uh, your, your response and tolerance. Yeah. For people who are, I mean, like an occasional drinker, I mean, you've all probably had that experience or heard of somebody who, you know, goes out one night and they just, they forget that they hadn't eaten or, 
or that they had, you know, maybe they didn't get a lot of sleep, whatever they were run down. They end up having what they think is like their normal consumption. Maybe they had a couple beers and all of a sudden they're, you know, way drunker than they normally are. I mean, this happens frequently in people who are moderate drinkers. So yeah, I don't, um, I mean, is it possible even to, <laughs> is it possible to use a substance recurringly without having some form of tolerance? I don't think so. No, I don't think so either. So, <laughs> so what is the question here? Did Have you used any substance uh, or any mind altering drug more than once? Is that the question? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, the, 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 the best example I, that I came to mind when you were talking just now was um, when you hear hear folks talk about, you know, um, intravenous heroin users or opiate users on the downtown east side of Vancouver. They're all very, very aware uh, when the dose is different or when the the stuff out on the street, the batch that they're getting is is different. And if it's, if it is fentanyl or if it's, you heard this more earlier on in the, in the fentanyl crisis that um, suddenly it was very, very different and, and where they were using half a point before half a point of heroin it's like, whoa, this is not the same. This is not what my body, what my body tolerance normally would tell me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So for sure. In that circumstance, there's going to be like people who are daily IV uh, drug users definitely have a very good handle on, they're very aware of what their tolerance is. Um, This is a big problem with the whole opioid crisis that could be solved simply by providing uh quality source of narcotics, which is a much cheaper and easier fix than anything they're doing right now. Yeah. Why on earth? Hydromorph is dirt cheap, man. You want to solve the problem? You want to solve the fentanyl crisis? Start giving out hydromorph. What's the problem? (laughs) You know, you want to save lives? Give people an alternative. It's pretty simple. And, and go from there. If the goal is, is saving lives as the first priority, um, there's your starting point and then, and then figure out the rest. But, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, Nathan, let's take us to our last, our, our last point there. So we're going to talk about withdrawal manifested as either of the following, the characteristic withdrawal symptom or syndrome related to the substance use or the substance or a closely related substance is taken to relieve or avoid withdrawal symptoms. Uh, so basically, uh, are you taking enough to experience withdrawal? And if so, are you using other similar, you know, maybe drugs in the same family to try and tone that down? For yeah. example, somebody who uh, you see it frequently where somebody who is uh, on a lot of uh, opiates and they can't get their next dose. One of the things that they'll do is they'll go into a pharmacy and grab as much Imodium as they can just to alleviate some of the withdrawal symptoms that being diarrhea. Um, and because that drug is, there's, there's no mood altering effects to it, but structurally it's similar enough that it can stave off some of the physiological effects anyways of withdrawal. So for our patient, what do you think? Well, again, if you're using, let's say, let's say marijuana, um, if you're using it on a daily basis, you, you don't get to that point. And marijuana is one where you could, 
you can argue that there isn't a aren't for, for many people, they would say that there isn't physical withdrawal from marijuana, but there, there's a psychological dependency there um, and a, a psychological withdrawal, so to speak, or a psychological urge that can happen. Um, so, I mean, that one's, that one's challenging. Um, when you're using a, an, prescription opioid as prescribed and following as evidence in this um, report that we've gone on, when you're using a Tylenol three, say for chronic pain as prescribed, um, when you talk about withdrawal, are you talking about the recurrence of pain or are you talking about physical symptoms of opioid withdrawal? Um, Is there a psychological dependency to the fact that your pain is relieved? That's another question that kind of makes me think of. Yeah, it's a little bit weird because you could make the case that if the patient was to stop smoking cannabis, they wouldn't be able to sleep. Therefore, they are addicted to cannabis. Sure. But that's not necessarily, I mean, the the insomnia existed before the cannabis came into play. So you can't, in my opinion, you can't blame the recurrence of the insomnia on the absence of cannabis even no. though it's likely to exacerbate it if you've been using it for a while. Sure. You'll probably have some rebound. As far as taking two codeine a day, I I would doubt that you'd have any kind of a physical withdrawal to that. Yeah, like, I would too. Uh, I, could, I could be wrong. Maybe if you're really, really sensitive, but it's just such a low amount of, uh, of codeine. It's, I suppose for some people, I mean, some people are very sensitive to medications like that. So, it's possible, but uh, it wouldn't be a factor in our patient's case because they're no. not, I mean, these are not issues that they're, they're struggling with. So how the question, so those are the 11 points, first of all, right? Those are the, the diagnostic criteria that, that were looked at. What was the, what was the effect that this had on, on our individual story and how did the, that criteria what was the what was the role that it played for her? Well, the role that it played is it destroyed her life, basically. Um, for this situation, uh, just to quickly give you an idea, so for for mild, they they consider a mild substance use disorder to be uh, the presence of two two to three of those points. Moderate is four to five, and severe is the presence of six or more of those points. So. This physician goes on to to decide to uh, just find the actual diagnosis here. So for cannabis, uh, it was decided that uh, this patient has a severe substance use disorder. to me, that was uh, mind-boggling. I, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't make those questions work for six or more for for her situation. Um, but that's that's what the physician went with. So you've got somebody who, in all likelihood, takes one or two puffs of cannabis at night to help her go to sleep, and she's been diagnosed with a severe cannabis addiction. Okay. So we move on to alcohol. According to this physician, 
this patient has a severe alcohol uh, disorder. And <clears throat> again, I don't know uh, if, I mean, if this patient has severe alcohol use disorder, then I don't know what a mild <laughs> or moderate problem looks like. Yeah. And this, that was the question that I, that I posed to, uh, she, uh, had eventually moved on to another physician and I, I was trying to discuss it with that physician, uh, and she didn't want to really get into it. And I totally understand why, but I, I just, I don't know what you would have to say in an IME to get a mild, uh, a mild diagnosis. So that's those two. Now, the one that is the most egregious is the, the opiate one. And, and there, the reason for this is, well, I'll get to it in a second, but the physician marked her down for a severe opiate disorder. And so the problem, <laughs> the, the big problem with this one is that the only evidence physical evidence that this patient used any opiates is her Pharmanet profile showing that she is taking codeine or Tylenol three at a low dose consistently as per prescribed. So that means that the physician is taking the, uh, the manager's word for it, that some diversion happened and that, that this patient must have, have then used that medication. But here's the kicker. <laughs> Tell us. <laughs> this is the part that blew my mind. So if you're, you might not be aware, one of the things they do in monitoring or when they want to look, uh, they want to do a real deep dive on what kind of substances you've ingested, they do a hair test. And hair tests are, they're, for all intents and purposes, they're unbeatable. I mean, there are ways that you can attempt to do it, but it's very, very difficult. And especially for women who have long hair, uh, you can go back and look at years and years of substance abuse and uh, pick up all sorts of things. So I have, I have her hair test here in my hand. And when you go down to uh, opiates, opiates were confirmed. And uh, so generally when they do that, they, they send it to a GCMS to do a, a uh, an in-depth look to see what kind of opiate. And so codeine was the only opiate that was confirmed. Um, marijuana was, was confirmed and uh, alcohol was confirmed. Everything else uh, th that is tested for on a normal list was clean and no other opiates were present in this patient's hair sample. But Nathan, <laughs> <laughs> What about the allegation of, of the missing or the missing or unaccounted for hydromorphone? What about it indeed? So what what really happened here? I I don't know. I mean, um, this patient well, the, is this patient is adamant that she didn't uh, that she did nothing wrong. She simply disagreed with the way that the drugs were being administered. Um and, and we, we do have evidence that there was uh, tension between her and her manager. Yeah. And there is within, within nursing, there is 
very oftentimes in physician orders, leeway to change the route of administration for a patient. A physician will often, you know, say, try to give orally first, but if orally is unavailable, oral, oral ingestion is, is not uh, possible, then you may give subcutaneously or intramuscularly or intravenously. So there is very, very often leeway in a physician's orders as uh, a painkiller is prescribed. So when I, I say, just to clarify, a moment ago, I said the missing hydromorphone. It's not missing hydromorphone. It is hydromorphone that it was given in a, in a way that um, the manager was opposed to. Yes. Um, and regardless of, <clears throat> I mean, let's say the, let's say the, there was missing hydromorph. There's just, I don't understand how this diagnosis could have moved forward with that, with that hair analysis. We know how accurate they are. Yeah. And yet this lady was, uh, she was sent to treatment. She came back and she was unable to complete monitoring. Um, mostly because she was having a, she was having a nervous breakdown because uh, she couldn't believe that this was happening to her. Um, so her mental health, uh, she, she was, she was in distress, big distress um, as, and anyone would be uh, given that, I mean, you wouldn't think that something like that would happen especially when it's contrary to the evidence that is right there. Um, so unfortunately for this individual, she was not able to afford a lawyer and she didn't, uh, she didn't pursue her case through the human rights tribunal. So she's, um, she's still, you know, she's, she, she lives uh, not too far from me. She's uh, doing well. Uh, she's retired and, um, and that's it. I mean, she's come to terms with the situation, but uh, this is a this is a capable person who is a uh, a fine nurse, and uh, they are no longer available for service because of a diagnosis that I don't understand. Yeah, and a, and a any kind of medical exam, especially a medical exam like this where there's such a legal um, weight to it and such a impact on one's future and one's career. Um, the fact that a medical diagnosis was made around an allegation without evidence is it's pretty shocking. It is shocking. This is one of the worst ones I've ever seen um, in that respect, as far as the diagnosis is concerned, it's as if this diagnosis was made up out of thin air. I, you know, the physician might as well have had a rubber stamp there that just said severe and just bang, bang, bang. I mean, would it have mattered what she said in that uh, IME? You know, I, I, I don't know. It, based on what we've read. No. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> so um, I guess the reason we wanted to present that case is because, and it, this is not always the way it goes. Uh, you know, there's lots of good physicians out there. And um, that being said, there is room for a lot of improvement in this process. And I, I hope that one day things will get better uh, and it won't be such a, 
one size fits all approach, trying to get people healthy and back to work. Uh, as it stands, it's it's pretty brutal, to be honest with you. So we wanted to go over this so that you, if you find yourself in this position, you are at least armed with some some knowledge of how the process is going to go. And you should understand that what you say while you're in there is going to be is going to be a part of your your medical file forever. Uh, the other thing that people a lot of people don't notice because they're nervous, they're not I mean lots of people are, are not in a good state of mind at this point anyway. Um, you know they're probably in a, some state of withdrawal advanced uh, um, well, some kind of withdrawal or not, you know, it's not, it's not a good time in your life. You've probably got multiple uh, stress factors going on. But you should know that these uh, IMEs generally have a clause in there that you sign off on that makes it so that uh, the information can be distributed differently than how the normal patient-doctor confidentiality act would would indicate. So, in other words, this document that you're providing is not confidential. It will go to your employer. It will go to your college. And most of them have a clause in there that is some kind of legalese, which basically means they can do whatever the hell they want with it. And that's it. So <clears throat> I would at least clarify the best thing you can do is be aware of who's involved in your case. So know who's involved at work, know who's involved at the college by name, know these individuals, keep a list. And when you go to do an IME, it would be best if you could clarify who amongst all these individuals uh, exactly is going to have access to this information so that you can look out for breaches of, of, confidentiality. Yeah. We just had a, uh, a member in Obsidian get uh, solicited for a study from some bizarre organization who had gotten hold of her email address and knew that she was in the monitoring program. Like that. I mean, so, so obviously some, some of this information is, is slipping out, right? And we see it yeah. time and time again, this can be very distressful for people who are I mean, it's going to be bad enough the way the 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 way it's set up when you get back to work. Lots of times you you don't have an option for it, uh, maintaining your uh, your status as an anonymous you know person with a, a substance abuse problem. Generally, some part of your staff or management staff is going to know what's going on, so that's bad enough. But having it leak out randomly um, that can cause a lot of problems down the line. Yeah, I was going to add just to what you said just a second ago, Nathan, that for, I'll just speak for nurses, one of the very, very first steps in the process before you even, you know, months before you encounter the independent medical exam or anything, and you um, require the support of your union, you sign off on a document that states that whatever whatever the, the plan moving forward is that you are to comply with that and that they will support you legally under the condition that you are compliant with this process. 
And so it leaves, it leaves one to <laughs> between a rock and a hard place that, that you are really signing your, your life or your professional life and your future into the hands of, of well, actually it's several other people, but um, in terms of this independent medical exam, it's, it, it will um, impact so many facets of your, your life and your career moving forward. And you've already signed off saying you will go with the flow. So it's something, something to know. Yeah, exactly. So think carefully about uh, what you want to divulge in that, uh, in that exam and uh, think about what you want to, to happen moving forward. It's likely that you want help with your problem. And 99% of the people who go into these exams just want to, they want to tell their doctor everything because they, they're, we're used to having doctors help us and we're, we usually trust doctors and uh, these you get in there and it's a, it's a long, it's a lengthy one-on-one process. And, and you might feel that uh, you can just pour your heart out. And uh, unfortunately that doctor is obligated to take all of the information that you give, make sense of it, and then spit out a report at the end. So make of that what you will. If you want, if you are in this situation and you want to discuss it further, you're, you're looking for advice. Um, feel free to uh, get a hold of us. It's uh, us at recoverymachine.org. You can email us. Um, remember to follow us on Spotify. And uh, if you're watching on YouTube, uh, uh, give us a like and a comment. Uh, that would be great. And sub too, that would be helpful. Uh, it, it increases our ability to uh, get this kind of message out. So we appreciate all that kind of thing. Um, and yeah, just uh, feel free. I mean, if you, if you have somebody who's in a tough spot and they're, they're concerned, uh, it's a scary time. Uh, it's, you're not at your best and you're going into a, uh, it, we hope it's less unknown now that we've kind of went over it for you, but it's still, it's daunting. It's, it's really daunting. And, you know, you're, you're a, a month or two months or maybe three months away from, from any kind of substance use or support. And you're relying purely on your new, new state of mental health. And maybe you've learned a couple of skills along the way early on, but, but at, between one and three months, you're still pretty, pretty new at this. And it's, uh, can be a shaky time. And uh, for me, I'm not sure that there was a more uncertain time or a time where I felt um, the most vulnerable or uh, the most uneasy. And then you hear that it's a three hour appointment and there are lots of factors that can really be stressful and really, really take a, uh, take a toll on, on your mental health. And um, you know, I just think any kind of um, you know, relaxation that you can do leading up to it and um, seeking the support of the people around you as you go into that that exam and, um, and, and then also knowing, you know, we, we, I think it was in the last episode, you had mentioned, you know, just that this too shall pass that, you, that it's, if you just look at, okay, it's a one to three hour appointment that I've got to get through and, and go from there. Um, 
it's a one to three, one to three hour point with a lot of consequence, but it's another, just another step to get through. And, uh, but it's a big one. We, we acknowledge that. Yeah, certainly do take your time and, uh, you know, you're under no obligation to rush while you're in there. So consider your words, consider what you say. And, uh, I would advise you to err on the side of concise answers to, to questions. Um, yeah, I guess we'll leave it at that. I, I don't want to elaborate too much further on that, but, uh, but yeah, if you can, you want to go in with a, uh, as good of a headspace as possible. You want to be in the right mental frame. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Oh, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good kind of once over for the IME. Wouldn't you think? I think it is. I hope that it's been helpful for the, uh, for the listeners and, and, Again, like all of these other things, if you're going through it, we hope it's a helpful resource. And if you're not going through it, but you're interested and you care, uh, hopefully it enlightens you a little bit. Absolutely. And a quick shout out to our uh, mystery nurse who uh, provided the sample case. Um, Hope you're well. And uh, we appreciate you allowing us to uh, go over your IME there. It's very helpful. Yep. Thank you. And and, uh, so we'll leave it there. And see everybody next time for episode eight. Episode Take care, eight. everyone. In the meantime, www.recoverymachine.org uh, for all things Recovery Machine. Absolutely. Like and subscribe. Yep. Thank you, guys. Yes. See, see you soon, everybody.